said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Before we open the Word of God this morning, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning, that we can be in this place and that we can worship you. Father, there is no other place that we would rather be than in your presence. And Father, I just ask and pray that as I open your word here this morning, that you may speak through me, that I may be merely a conduit, Father, of your grace, that your spirit may rain down, that you may anoint my words, that Jesus might be glorified. Here's a prayer I pray in your precious name. Amen. The series that we've been going through, we started last week, um, is called The Pillars. And so we're looking at pillars of our faith. And last week we looked at the scriptures, and the scriptures are the ultimate foundation or basis for our faith. It's, they are the, the foundation upon which we build as Christians. It's where we understand what doctrine is, what truth is. You know, truth is, is not subjective in the sense that you know, we have different truths. Truth is the truth, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus... Jesus proclaims in a very powerful way that he is the essence of truth. And that's what we looked at last week. This week, we're looking at salvation, this pillar, this key cornerstone in Scripture. In fact, even last week, when we're looking at the the topic of, of Scripture, at the heart of Scripture is this desire of a God who wishes to save his people. And at the heart of salvation is a single word, and it's the word gospel. Now, the gospel means good news. Now, often we can say things and not really know what we mean. We just say it because we've heard it said and we don't understand the, maybe the full import of what we're saying. But what makes the good news good news? Why is it good, church? I want to hear from you. Why is it good? It's not bad. If something's not bad, then therefore it is good, yeah? It's rescuing, yep, salvation, yes, yes, yes. These are things that that salvation makes the good news good. But in order for the news to be good, there has to be news that's what? If there's no bad news, then what's the point of the good news? You following me? And that's what makes the good news so good. That's why the gospel is good news, because it's saving us from something. And if there was nothing in order for us to be saved from, then what's the point of the good news if the good news is about God saving us from something, yeah? Let me give you a bit of an illustration. Let's say that you go out to breakfast with me and we get some poached eggs. If you don't eat eggs, that's right, I'll eat your serving as well. And we're having breakfast. And in the middle of our breakfast, I stand up and I walk around to your side of the table and I go behind you and I put my arms around you and pull you up and then start to to pull my arms in close to my chest like this. It's called the Heimlich Maneuver. Is that good news? Depends. Depends. It's good news if you're choking. Is it good news if you're not choking? The thing is, church, I believe that the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. 
If there's no need for us to be saved from something, then what's the point of the good news? In other words, we need to understand the bad, the bad news sorry, before we can understand the true significance of the good news. So let's have a look at the bad news. Let me depress you first before we look at the good news. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter three. If not, the words are on the screen. But if you've got your scriptures, I encourage you to open your scriptures with me. In Genesis chapter three, let me know when you're there and then we'll start reading. What we're gonna do is we're gonna go to the very beginning of scripture. In chapters one and chapters two, God creates the world. He speaks that it is. And then we come to chapter three with all the good intentions that God gave to humanity, all the innumerable blessings which He so freely and graciously bestowed upon them. Adam and Eve take the freedom and freedom and freedom of choice is really what it is to exist in the image of God. And they take those liberties that God has given them and they choose to exploit it for themselves. But there's a process in this deception. Satan doesn't just say, hey guys, follow my way. He chips away a little bit. He breaks them down. There's a sequence of lies or deceptions that bring them to the place where they're willing to take the alternative that he's offering. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna break down that sequence of deceptions. The first one here is in verse one. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now I want you to look at those verses very carefully. What is Satan doing here with the question that he's asking? What is he implying? He's implying doubt. Has God indeed said? Some translations say, has God actually said? Or has God really said? He's implying doubt in what church? What God has said. The first lie that Satan brings forth to Adam and Eve in the garden is to doubt the validity of God's word. If I came to you and said, did the tax office really say? What am I getting at? You can probably ignore the advice of the tax office. Satan's coming along here and he's saying to Eve right here in the garden, has God really said? Which means you don't have to listen to what God says. You don't have to take his word as an authority. But it's not just in that. Have a look at what, the way he goes about it. He says, has God indeed, or has God actually, or has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? What does he get Eve to focus on? All the trees that she can eat from, or all the trees that she can't eat from? He gets Eve to focus on the one tree that she can't have and forget all the trees that she can have. God said to Eve in the garden and Adam as well, you may eat from every tree but this one. So God says, all of these blessings are yours. I've given them to you. You can go to every single tree. You can use every single liberty that I have given you, but there's just one thing, only one thing that you cannot do. God makes them focus on all of his blessings. Satan gets them to focus on the one thing that they can't have. The first lie or the first deception is to doubt what God has said, which paves way for the second deception, which we see in verses four and five. Then the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. I mean, if Eve wasn't ready to embrace that first deception, then she wouldn't have been ready to embrace the second one. This is the second one here. You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Your eyes will be open and you will be like, who will they be like? They will be like God knowing good and evil. What's this second deception, church? God is withholding something from you, Eve, and he doesn't want you to have it. God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't have your best interests at heart because if he did have your best interests at heart, then he would let you eat this fruit. The only reason God doesn't want you to eat this fruit is he doesn't want you to be like him. God is withholding something from you. God is restrictive. God is restricting you from having true happiness. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever experienced Satan do that to you before? That if I choose to follow God, I'm gonna miss out on this, 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 this. And you kind of run through it in your mind and you count the cost. This is the same lie and Satan just repackages it. At the heart of this lie is this desire to be like God and that's really the desire of sin. To put ourselves in the place of God. And where that really exists, and if you had to summarise what that really means, there's a single word and it's the word pride. At the middle of the word pride is the letter I. At the middle of the word sin is the letter I. It's putting me in front of everybody else. That's what sin is. Me first, everybody else second. Eve puts herself first and she puts herself in front of God. That's the second deception. And now everything's just a formality. She's doubted God's word and then she's doubted God's character. So what is there left? There's no authority for her to base her life upon. If God's word can't be trusted and God himself cannot be trusted, then I'm gonna forge my own identity, my own future, my own hope. And here comes the alternative. If Satan did this from the outset, do you think she would have said no? 100%. He does a bit of psychology on her, knowing that if he gets her to this place after he sold her the first two lives, then she's gonna take this hook, line and sinker. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. You notice how it appeals to the senses? It was good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. Did the fruit look good, church? Was it appealing? Absolutely. And you see how it says that it was good. During the creation week, what does God do at the end of each and every day when he finishes his creative activity? He looks back on it and he says, it is good. The first day, it is good. Second day, it is good. Third day, it is good. Fourth day, it is good. Fifth day, it is good. Sixth day, it is good. The end of the seventh day, he looks back and he says, it is very good. So this looks as if it's a part of creation. It's a good fruit. It seems to toe the line with everything else that they've seen in the garden, apart from the fact that God said that it was different. Apart from the fact that God said that it was bad. That's the only thing that differentiated it from everything else. The fact that God said that it was different. Sometimes 
the distinction of what is sin and what isn't sin isn't so clear cut apart from the fact that God has said that it's sin and you just got to trust him. She just had to trust him. She didn't know what the reasons why, the properties that were in that fruit, it looked good, it was desirable to make one wise, it was pleasant, etc., etc., etc. It looked good apart from that single, single factor. That fine print at the bottom. God said it's not. And she took of it and she ate. Satan's operated like this. It's like a right jab, doubt God's word. Left jab, doubt God's character. And here's the right hook. He's prepared her for this, but he's butted her up for this. And he sells sin in an attractive light. Do you know what the funniest ads on TV are, usually? What are they usually selling? Alcohol. You notice that? They're the funniest ads. Would it be expedient for the alcohol companies to actually put forth ads showing domestic violence? Child abandonment or abuse, drink driving or alcoholism. Would it be expedient for them? Because that doesn't sell. So they dress it up. What does Satan do here with the fruit? He dresses it up. Because sin sells best when it is dressed up to be something that is not Sin may look good. In fact, sin may even feel good for a while. But there will come a point where that which tasted good once turns to ashes on your lips. I mean, just ask Eve. And you realize that it's not good. What happened to Adam and Eve after they took the fruit and ate it? Remember, Eve ate it first. She thought that it was great. So great, in fact, that I need to take it to Adam. So it wasn't immediate, was it? We see in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. At least that was the truth. Satan was selling that. That wasn't the lie. Their eyes truly would be opened, but not in the way that they expected. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. How sin appears and how it will leave you are two completely different things altogether. This is the same progression, the same sequence of deception that Satan uses for us today. If you doubt the authority of God's scripture, then you doubt the character of a benevolent God. And when you doubt the character of a benevolent God and the the validity and the authority of his word, then you choose your own destiny. You forge your own destiny because there's no authority for you to base your life upon apart from your own. You make yourself your own God. He just repackages it again. Do you see it? Has it happened to you before? It's happened to me before. There is no new thing under the sun. How does sin leave them? It leaves them naked, it leaves them ashamed, and it leaves them alone. Have you ever been there? And I'm not talking about naked in the literal sense. But in the spiritual sense, have you ever felt alone, ashamed, guilty? Well, that's normal because that's what sin does. That's how it will make you feel. And you know, when you make promises to God and you say, God, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. I promise you I won't do it again. 
after you've just been on your knees asking forgiveness for the sin that you just committed and you know that it's wrong and it pains you that you've gone back to it again, you go back to God and say, God, I'm so sorry that I went back there again. Will you forgive me? And He will forgive you. He will. But then you fall back again. And it's like those promises are like ropes of sand, yes? And every single time you fall, it kind of, it makes you question your own sincerity. The nakedness comes back. The shame comes back. And it feels as if it intensifies. Because that's what sin does. It destroys. It looks good and it may feel good, but it will not leave you good. And then what do they try to do once they realize their nakedness and their shame? They try to fix the problem. Let's cover our nakedness. Let's get some fig leaves. And then the next verse, which we're going to read soon, they then, after they covered themselves, they go and they find a bush and they hide behind a bush from God. Now, does that sound a little bit irrational to you? Can we hide from God at the best of times? Can you hide from God behind a tree? And they're hiding behind this tree from God who sees all things and who knows all things and knows exactly where they are. Sin is irrational. And they're trying to fix their problem. And they're hiding behind a tree from God. Now that's human reason for you. And this is a representation, church, of how humanity deals with the issue of sin. Right here in this verse. You have the promise of intellectual advancement of society saying, we're going in a great direction. You have the promise of political stability and politicians who promise you the world, who promise you safety but take away your freedoms. You have the promises, these promises, promises, promises. There's this desire to create this utopia. And, and there's so many political leaders from the French Revolution to, to the, the, the Marxist experiment in the, in the 19th century where there's this great promise of utopia. This leader is saying, everyone will be equal. We're going to serve you. Your rights will be, will, be, will be given to you. But then they take it. And the great experiment of communism in this last century led to tens of millions of people dying. Why? Because that's humanity for you, trying to fix the problem that only God can fix. There can be no utopia this side of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because of the brokenness and the nakedness of man. How man always puts himself first at the expense to everybody else. That's why the world needs a Savior church. This world needs a Savior. Political leaders will come and go, Donald Trump ain't your Savior. Joe Biden ain't your Savior. Scott Morrison ain't your Savior. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Because the political leaders, they'll just pander to the different groups to get the votes. And at the end of the day, it's all broken. Because that's the condition of humanity. And the mobs will try to control and the mob rule, mob rule, my desires, my aims, and the mobs, the majority will oppress the minority because humanity is so broken. And you're probably thinking, this is a really depressing sermon, Ashley. Hang on till the end because the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. So let's define the bad news and see that it is systemic across every single person, of every single nationality, of every single epoch and era, at every single moment of time in human history. We think that we're pretty good because we're civilized. But what happened in civilized Europe 
last century. In the most educated nation in the world, they killed six million Jewish people. Education isn't the answer, church. It's the fear of the Lord that is the answer. Was their situation hopeless? Yes or no? Adam and Eve, was their situation hopeless? Yes. If the story finished there, what would the answer be? It's done. Finished. All over. But does the story finish there? It doesn't. The good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. And the worse the news, the worse the bad news, the better the good news. Therefore, the news at its worst makes the good news at its best. That's the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news, because it comes after the bad news. I want to share with you a bit of a story. It happened to me. I got a brand new car, and you probably heard this story before, but I'm going to say it anyways. I got a brand new car in 2014, a Hyundai i30. And I had never had a new car before. You know that new car smell? Really nice smell, everything's clean. The paint has no chips in it. Inside of the car, it's just perfect, everything. And then a week after you buy it, you get the vacuum out because there's a few little bits and pieces and you're just cleaning it. That kind of finishes after a year, it just becomes a car. But I remember the first scratch I got on that car. And what made it worse is I was the one that scratched it. I was reversing out at the school and I ran into those rocks in that kind of roundabout at the, the high school campus. And I heard this scratch and I'm just like, oh no, this was a month after I bought it, mind you. Bad news, yeah? It was definitely bad news to me. Then a month later, I was driving up to see family um, up on the Gold Coast. And you know when you hit Palm Beach? Well, you get to around Palm Beach, Corumban Palm Beach, guess what happens to the traffic? <laughs> it's terrible. It's just like everyone's bumper to bumper at snail pace. And then you just kind of, you're going, you're stopping, you're going, you're stopping. And then there's this guy behind me who was driving his girlfriend's car while his girlfriend was in the car. And I don't know whether he was looking into her eyes or whether he was playing with the, the, the radio or the CD player or whatever it was, but he was distracted and when he should have stopped, he kept going. And he went right up the back of the car. Good news or bad news? Bad news. <laughs> Good news for me because I had a scratch on my bumper. And now I get a, good, I get, get a good new one, and he has to pay for it. Would it have been good news if there was no scratch on my bumper, yes or no? It was only good news because there was a scratch, because the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad, and when the news is at its worst, the good news is at its best. This is where the good news comes in, church. It's verse eight onwards. Guess who comes? Let's have a look. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? There's two things that God does here that shows us what salvation is all about. First, God comes and then he calls. Salvation can be summarised in a single word, and that word is initiative. 
God takes the initiative when we never could. Adam and Eve here in the garden, they recognise their nakedness and they don't know what to do with it. They don't even know if they can call out to God. And God in their brokenness and in their extremity and in their shame and in their hiding, He comes to them just as they are and He seeks them out. That's salvation. God comes and He calls when we never deserved it and He finds us as we are. Salvation boils down into the single word of initiative. Is there anything that they could have done to save themselves? There is nothing. They tried it. Salvation is initiative. It's God taking that first step because we never could. And it's not just a step. It's not just a regular step. It's an infinite step. Because who is God? He's everything. And who is he coming to? Brokenness. Why? Because he loves us with a love that cannot be comprehended and cannot be understood, that this is the God, Lord God Almighty, who comes and calls in the midst of our shame and in the midst of our brokenness. And here at Adam and Eve, and what are they feeling? What are they thinking? Why are they hiding? It's because they're afraid. They're afraid of God. God was just speaking to them face to face before they ever took the fruit, but now they're hiding from God. Do you hide from somebody that you're afraid of? Has God changed or have they changed? They're the one that's changed. God hasn't changed. And in fact, God's pursuit for them is emphasizing who God always was and who he would always be. This is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. God comes close to them, knowing how much it's going to cost him. Salvation is costly, church. The good shepherd comes to save the sheep. He initiates, he condescends, he advances, and you could put it in a simple word, he saves. And then what does Adam do once God enters into a dialogue with him? He says this. This is Adam speaking. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, this is God speaking, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So then God turns to the woman. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. What do you see here? It's the blame game. If anyone has ever had kids, you see this just here. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. Guess what Satan's called? The accuser of the brethren. There's this circle of blame. Nobody here is willing to take responsibility, are they? Nobody. Nobody here is willing to take responsibility, but there is one, and there is only one who's willing to take responsibility, and guess who that is? It's the one who wasn't responsible. The one who wasn't responsible, which is God, chooses responsibility. And it had to be him. It had to be the, the one that was perfect, 
who takes that step to save them. In fact, you think about Adam and Eve, you think about the breakdown of relationships. Sin is the breakdown of relationships and Adam and Eve have severed their relationship with God. How do we know that? They're hiding from him when he's coming towards them. And because it severed their relationship with God, what does that do to the relationships with each other? It severs that relationship. Now you have broken relationships because of sin. When you look at the 10 commandments, the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God and the last six have to do with our relationship with humanity. At the heart of sin is the breakdown of relationship. The breakdown, number one, with God, which severs their relationships with everybody else. But God comes to restore the brokenness and reunite them back into his family again by assuming responsibility when he never had to. That's salvation. That's initiative. And this is not free for God. It costs him everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his own only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And right in the midst of the fallenness of humanity, when they're wondering what the future could be, if there could ever be a possibility of future, God gives a promise to them, which they cling to. In Genesis 3.15, God is addressing Satan here and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me explain what this means. God is addressing Satan, the deceiver, the initiator of evil. And he says, I'm gonna put a hostility, Satan, between you and between this woman, Eve, between those that follow you and those that will come through her, her lineage. And there will be someone who will come through her lineage that will crush your head. But in the midst of that, he will receive a death blow himself for you will bruise his heel as the serpent and he will die. That's Jesus, church. The first promise of a saviour to come was in the midst of the fallenness of humanity. In other words, as soon as there was sin, there was a saviour. This is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's a beautiful picture. But it will cost him how much? Cost his life. And then what you see is you see these curses and God takes Adam and Eve aside and he says, because of your choices, there's consequences. There's always consequences for choosing a path that is outside of God's will and outside of God's plan. Because remember, the boundaries that God gives us are for our benefit and for our freedom. And when you step out of that, you put yourself in harm's way. So they thought that they were liberating themselves by eating the fruit, but rather they were putting themselves in bondage. These are the consequences of that sin chosen, that bondage chosen. Sorrow, pain, curse, toil, thorns, sweat, death. And you see that in verses 16 through to 19. But let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus came as the second Adam, did he not? Did Jesus experience sorrow? He was called a man of sorrows. Just did Jesus experience pain? And more than just the physical pain, did he experience a real soul-piercing pain as he was separated from his father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he hung on Calvary? Did Jesus experience the curse Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. He takes our curse. Did Jesus live a life of toil? 
He had nowhere to lay his head, it says in the Gospels. Did Jesus, well, what did he wear on his brow? Crown of thorns. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he sweat? Drops of blood. And then it ended in death. The curse which were given to Adam and Eve are curses that Jesus experienced himself. I heard a preacher once say, we lost it in a garden. Jesus made the decision to go to the cross in a garden. We lost it at a tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Jesus won it back at the tree of Calvary in which he was pierced upon. Everything we mess up, he fixes. Jesus comes as that second Adam and he takes on the curse of Adam and he conquers through it. He initiates when he never has to. He takes responsibility when he never had to. This is God. Salvation costs life. Somebody dies that somebody might live. And you see it in this beautiful expression as we close. Are they still naked? Well, they're covered in fig leaves, but God's like, that won't do. Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin, and what did he do? He clothed them of their nakedness. Now think about that for a moment. In order to get skin, what do you have to do? Something has to die. The first time that anything had ever died is here. And it's died so they can be clothed, that their nakedness might be covered. I want you to think about the significance of that for a moment. Was this clothing merely a physical covering? Or was it more than that? Question, were they already clothed? When God came and found Adam, what was he wearing? I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, but what was he wearing? Fig leaves. This nakedness was not a physical nakedness. This nakedness was a spiritual nakedness and it needed covering. And it can only be covered by what God provides. You know what? We try to cover up our own messes ourselves. We try to fix the problem that only God can fix. But God has the solution. And it's not a solution amongst many other solutions. It is the only solution. And right here in the death of these animals to provide the covering for Adam and Eve, we see foreshadowed the death of Jesus Christ. What we see here is the covering that is a promise and a covering that is a reality. And what I mean by that is this. As they wore those garments that God had made for them, those garments given to them was a promise of what Jesus would do when he hung upon the cross as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But it was also a reality that their nakedness was covered and that they were forgiven. It's like a a now but not yet. He will come, but here's your guarantee. Here's your assurance in the present. And you're wearing it, and it's covering your brokenness. In coming for Adam and Eve in the garden that day, 
God came for us. He came for you and he came for me. He comes and he calls. He seeks us out. Without God, we are naked. We are ashamed. We are guilty. And we are lost. And that's the truth of the matter. You know, we can try to convince ourselves that we're pretty good. And what we do is we often distract ourselves with many different things to say, uh, eternal reality, let's, let's kick that can down the road. You know what I mean? And we distract ourselves with so many different things that those eternal questions we don't end up answering. But I want to tell you that I've been on many deathbeds. And when you're confronted with eternal realities, you ask those eternal questions. Isn't that right, Pastor Ross? When you're confronted with those eternal realities, that's when the rubber hits the road. You may throw yourself into sport. You may throw yourself into money. You may throw yourself into, into status. You may throw yourself into your work. You may throw yourself into relationships. But at the end of the day, they're all dead ends. And when you hit that dead end, you realize that there is more to life than just this world and there are eternal questions. And wouldn't it make sense to ask those questions and have those questions answered now until the end? There is a remedy and there is a solution and that remedy and solution is only found in Jesus Christ. We are all broken and we are all ashamed and the good news is that the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. Yes, it's a pretty harsh condition that we're in but that's what makes the gospel such good news. It's not a band-aid solution. It is the only solution. The bad news is that without Jesus, we are eternally lost. The good news is that with Jesus, we are eternally saved. And it's all because of him. So, where are you? Where are you right now? I want you to consider those eternal questions right at this moment. Let's not kick it down, the can down the road to whenever that may be. Let's, let's ask those questions now. Are you like Eve right now where you're questioning whether this is really all that it's cracked up to be, questioning God's word? Are you like Eve right now wondering whether God has your best interests at heart and you're kind of wrestling with the thought, well, if, if this is really all that it's meant to be, if this is really true, then that means that my life's gonna have to change. God's restricting me? No, 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 God's liberating you. Or maybe you, you're considering what solutions can I kind of find in my own way? What kind of fig leaf garments can I kind of construct in my own devising? What remedies can I come to myself? Or maybe you're just hiding. You don't want anyone to find, find you out and where you really are and to find out who you truly are. Maybe you're just blaming everybody else to make yourself the victim. Victims are never free, church. And there's this cycle of victimhood. The Bible says... We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. It is to each and every one of you, wherever you are, at whatever juncture in life that you are now at, it is for you right now to know that Jesus comes to you and Jesus calls to you and whoever Jesus comes to and calls to, which is you, he never casts them out. It doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you are. We have a merciful saviour. He has an abundant provision for all of you. And I want to call you to decision right here today. 
If you here today want to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, here I am, I am broken, I am lost, and I am alone. And I want you to come to me. And I want you to call to me. And I want you to save me. I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, we just come to you here today and we thank you so much. We thank you so much for what you have done. We never deserved it. We never even asked for it, but we were freely given the greatest gift that could ever be imagined. Father, we thank you that Jesus was treated as we deserve, that we might receive the blessings that only he deserves. We thank you that through his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Father, that you see the possibility in each and every one of us and that, Father, we become sons and daughters of yours through the blood of the Lamb that was spilled for us. Father, I pray that we may cease from hiding. I pray that we may cease from running and that we may instead choose you because in choosing you, we choose life. Father, may we not continue to buy into the deceptions and the lies of the evil one, but may we embrace the truth and the freedom, the liberty that comes through the gospel and through Jesus Christ living in and through us. Father, watch over us for the rest of this day. And Father, may we ponder these themes, themes upon which we will dwell throughout the ages of eternity. And Father, may we not just ponder them, but may we experience them for ourselves. Is the prayer that I pray in Jesus' name. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. How I love the great Redeemer who is doing so much for me. With what joy I tell the story of the love that makes man free. Till my earthly life is ended, I will sing songs above, songs above then beside the crystal sea. More and more my soul shall be praising Jesus and His love. He is at He is everything to me, and everything shall always be. I will never cease to raise a song of gladness in His praise. And in the world above, my soul shall sing of saving love. Life and light, and joy you see, the precious friend who died for me. Glory be to him forever, endless praises to Christ the Lamb. He has filled my life with sunshine, he has made me what I am. Oh, that everyone would know Him. Oh, that all, oh, that all, oh, that all, oh, that all, oh, that all would trust.
bless the love of the mighty friend above and be his forevermore. He is everything to me, to me. He is he everything is to, me, to me, and everything, everything shall always be. Always be. I will never cease to raise a song of gladness in his praise. Here and in the world above, my soul shall sing of saving love. Life and light and joy is here, the precious friend who died for me. A cappella dirge sang The Great Redeemer. Up next, Redeemed by Fountain View Academy. No language my rapture can tell I know that the light of His presence With me doth continually dwell Redeemed, redeemed Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb Redeemed how I love to proclaim it His challenge forever I series You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, 
for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, When Samissi Changed His Mind. If you listened to the last episode, you'll remember how through a series of remarkable events, the ship that was supposed to be travelling from Pangai via Tofua to Nukolofa in the Kingdom of Tonga ended up taking me to the islands of Hafeva and Namuka. You will recall that I was visiting primary schools on various islands conducting entrance examinations for Beulah College, the main Seventh-day Adventist secondary school in the Kingdom. And in the afternoon of the day I told you about in the last episode, we were on our way to the island of Hafeva on that small government ship. The breeze was pleasant as the ship throbbed its way over the swells that set it rolling more than was comfortable. I used the word throbbed to describe the way that ship moved because it was driven by an engine that felt as though it was throbbing right through my body and shaking me apart. Still, at least I was going where I wanted to go and where quite evidently God also wanted me to go, so I was not about to complain of the means of transport. A few days earlier, I had telegrammed the headmaster of the primary school on the island of Ever, telling him that I was planning to visit the island to administer the Beulah entrance examinations and inviting him to arrange for the children at his school to sit the tests. I had indicated that I expected to be there in the morning or early afternoon of the day that I was now going to be there. The only difference was that I would now arrive quite late in the afternoon, just before sunset. As we neared the island, I looked at the sun, so low in the sky, and hoped that the later time would not pose a problem. Of course, everyone who lives on those islands knows that times are only tentative. One can never be sure about the time ships will arrive or depart, or whether they will even come or not. As our story last week showed, Ships' plans change without notice, so nobody's surprised when a ship comes late or simply doesn't turn up at all. Hafever is just a small, flat coral atoll that at some time in the past was overlaid by a thick layer of good soil blown out by some volcano not too far away. It's quite fertile and supports quite a large village. It's surrounded by reefs, so ships can approach and anchor on only one side of the island. As we eased through the reef to the anchorage, the sun hung just above the western horizon. The anchor chain ran out noisily. The propeller turned the water in reverse and our ship came to a stop a hundred metres or so offshore. Within a few minutes the dinghy had been lowered and my helper Stephen and I were rowed ashore. A walk of several hundred metres brought us to an open area just outside the village, and I made inquiries to find Semisi, the school headmaster. Before long, a dignified gentleman approached us from the direction of the village and introduced himself as Semisi. The headmaster enjoyed a quite respected status on the island, and I was anxious to enlist his cooperation in arranging for the examination. We exchanged a few words of friendly greeting, and then I got down to business. Samisi, 
I'm sorry we've arrived later than the telegram said we would, but you know how it is with these ships, I began. The ship is due to leave about three in the morning, so I'm wondering whether you could arrange to have the grade six children come over to the school for the exam. Semissi looked at me as if to assess my determination. Well, you said that you would be here earlier today. I was expecting you this morning. It's really too late to call the children now, he mumbled rather apologetically. It'll be dark soon and the children will be needing to get some rest. I think the best thing for you to do will be to leave the examination papers with me and then I'll administer the exam tomorrow and send the completed papers to you by the next ship for marking. Now this posed something of a problem. For a start, the tests I was using were especially designed to assess the general ability of the children and they had to be administered under standard conditions. That's why I was making the trip myself in the first place. A second problem was that it was a matter of some importance to local headmasters to have as many as possible of their children pass the secondary entrance examinations. Headmasters of schools achieving high pass rates attained considerable prestige in the community. So if Samissi could administer the tests himself, it would provide him the opportunity to ensure that his pupils were in no way disadvantaged, to put the matter as politely as possible. Samissi thought that he was in a strong bargaining position, as indeed he was, looking at from a purely human point of view. I tried to reason with him. But Samissi, I began, these tests are special ones. They have to be timed very carefully, and the exact wording of instructions is very important. If the children have any questions, the one administering the tests has to know which questions may be answered and how, and which questions the children should figure out for themselves as part of the general ability test. So I can't just leave the test with you to administer. It will be a pity if your children don't have an opportunity to try out for Beulah College when I'm here already, and it's just a matter of calling them to come. But Samissi could not be persuaded. Perhaps he hoped that I would eventually accept his suggestion, or perhaps he just wasn't used to having his decisions questioned. Whatever the reason, Samissi was determined there would be no tests that evening. He beckoned toward the school buildings, which stood across the open area on the opposite side from the village. We can go and wait in the schoolhouse until it's time to go back to the ship, he said. At least that will be a bit more comfortable for you than standing here. He turned to lead the way to the school. The path to the school ran up the side of the open area for perhaps 50 metres, then formed a T-junction where it met the path from the village to the school. At the T-junction, the path to the right led to the village and the path to the left led to the school. As we began to walk up the path toward the junction, Samissi led the way and Stephen and I followed. I recall quite clearly looking at the back of Samissi's head and saying to the Lord, Lord, you've done some wonderful things to get us here today and I'm sure you want me to give the children these tests. Please get into the head of this man in front of me and impress him to change his mind, if that's your will. We walked up the path in silence as I wondered what the Lord would do. 
when we reached the junction, so she turned around and said, you go ahead over to the schoolhouse while I go to the village and get a light and call the children. Yes, it took God just those few minutes while we were walking up that path to change Samisi's mind. And that's not the end of the story. It didn't take Samisi long to round up the 15 or so children from his class six, and before long we saw the light approaching the schoolhouse as Samisi led his band of enthusiastic hopefuls toward their date with destiny. Samisi seemed to be in good spirits. His former reserve had vanished and he had become quite jovial. The light was hung from the roof and the children sat on the long benches that passed for school desks. Instructions were issued and at the signal to begin, heads were bent over the papers in deep concentration. There were several tests in the battery, but before long they were over and I set about marking them with the keys I had with me. I told the children that if they liked to wait a little while, they could learn the results that evening. After reading the names of those who qualified for entry to Beulah College, I asked them to remain a moment so I could tell them something about the college. At the conclusion, I asked, would you put up your hands if you would really like to come to Beulah College next year? Most hands went up, and I particularly noted a bright little fellow in the back bench waving his hand energetically. A big smile brightened Samishi's face. See that boy down there, he beamed, pointing to the little fellow at the back. That's my son. So the day ended most successfully, with everyone happy and a job well done. I was not alone. God was there to work things out. Listening friend, Wherever you are right now, you are not alone. Why suffer anxiety, worry and fear that can only do you harm? Take your problems to God in prayer and you will find that the God who loves you is right there with you. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3avianaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456. May God bless you and remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.